Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Good morning. Uh, Welcome to New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network. My name is Krzysztof Odinitz and my guest today is Dr. Sasha Pack. Sasha Pack is Associate Professor of History at the University of Buffalo. He studies modern Europe, Spain and Portugal, and the Mediterranean, and transnational and political history. His new book, The Deepest Border, considers the Strait of Gibraltar as a borderland or border zone. Dr. Pack integrates a range of sources, military, intelligence files, public health reports, consular correspondence, and travel diaries from Spain, France, Morocco, and Gibraltar to examine how sovereignty operates on the periphery and how borders are constructed and maintained and the enduring legacies of imperialism and colonialism. So thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Pack. Good morning in California, and I suppose good evening in Paris. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Would you tell us what is Gibraltar? How is it important? How did it happen? Your book starts with the Treaty of Utrecht after the uh, War of Spanish Succession, but maybe you can tell us a bit about its geology and geography before, uh, and then move into the politics. Absolutely. Um, well, of course, Gibraltar refers to a large rock that stands about 1,400 feet high that uh, is connected uh, uh, the southern portion of the Iberian Peninsula and is connected by a small strip of, of land that's about a mile long and a few hundred feet wide. Um, so it's not quite an island, although if you look at it from a distance, it almost looks like an island that's sitting out there in the middle of the Strait of Gibraltar, which itself is only about eight miles wide, eight to 10 miles wide, depending on where you are. Of course, it separates Europe from Africa, Spain from Morocco, if you like, the first world from the third world, um, the historic domains of Christianity and those of Islam and so forth. So it, it very much is an, uh, an important world border and to see it uh is is very impressive because you just you, you you see it right in front of your eyes and and the most prominent feature of the landscape um, is the rock of Gibraltar, which as you mentioned fell under um, control of um, the the English in seventeen well it, they were ca- it was captured by the English in seventeen o four 
Uh, but eventually, um, with the Treaty of Utrecht in, in 1713, uh, it is uh, formally uh, given over to Britain. Now, the book is about many things, and Gibraltar is only one strand. The, the actual British colony of Gibraltar is actually one, just one strand of the whole story, but it's an important strand because, um, because it is uh, the British Empire that... Um, turns the strait um into um a um in into a, a geographical feature that has real geopolitical significance first in the british conquest of the mediterranean if you want to call it that um the british french rivalry in the mediterranean and then later on down after the opening of of uh, the Suez Canal in the 1860s um, becomes a kind of a junction in the global thoroughfare that links um, the North Atlantic with India and um, uh, and uh, the Pacific. So, um, so that as a result has a has an impact on the the kind of much more local scale in the sense that this once relatively remote kind of um, society, uh, or at least there are two societies, really one on the southern uh, tip of Iberia and the other on the northern part of Morocco, suddenly become um, kind of um, become, they, they become linked to this, um, mm-hmm. to the world beyond. Uh, and they um, acquire this extremely important Geo- geopolitical position, while at the same time uh, also um, becoming more connected to one another, um, and at the same time being sort of uh, relatively poor and remote. Uh, so, well, so there you have it. That's uh, that's the yeah. That's the Rock of Gibraltar, which sort of is the linchpin that kind of connects, I think, the story together in many ways. So let me ask. You just, so you you really take a nineteenth century look at this longer story. And I think that's maybe because, as you said, the British really come into the Mediterranean and become such a powerful empire, far far more so than other empires in, uh, before. And from an earlier, sort of early modern Spanish point of view, it's, 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 it's a Spanish position, but then everything changes technologically. This horrible, unending problem with cholera that, that we see throughout the, the throughout the whole story and i think multilateral just the fact that it's not only spain and morocco but now it's the british and now it's the french and now it's uh uh you know eventually i'm sure the the, the americans i they're not big but they're there and um it's uh you talk about a multilateral regional order in the hispanic african borderland so that's sort of both like two-sided and many-faceted is is that is that unique to the 19th century uh, and into the first part of the 20th. Yes, absolutely. I think you said that uh, well. We often tend to think of the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century uh, in terms of this era of European empire and colonialism and settlement, this kind of outward expansion of Europe. And of course, in many ways, um, that's accurate. But... At the same time, I caution against looking at the Strait of Gibraltar as this kind of horizon for European expansion, expansionism, because, first of all, 
nobody was particularly interested in conquering Morocco and colonizing Morocco for its own sake. Eventually, Morocco does become uh, a protectorate of the French with a Spanish section in the north. Um, but that's really kind of auxiliary to um, the French uh, colony in Algeria. And at the same time, Spain and the Spanish, who of course lose the vestiges of their American empire in 1898 at the hands of the United States, um, the the Spanish don't particularly think of themselves as uh, imperialists. They think of themselves very much as being colonized as well by this situation. The fact that um, the British control this strategically vital rock of Gibraltar, which sits on what they consider to be their territory, um, by the terms of a treaty, this Treaty of Utrecht of 1713, which they feel the British never really took seriously and never really abided by the terms of. Um, and so the Spanish feel themselves to be colonized. So, yes, they do establish a colonial protectorate in Morocco, a very small portion of essentially the northern sliver of French Morocco. Um, but it's very much also the story of a kind of um, cultivation of a sort of colonial solidarity between the Spanish and the Moroccans um, in a common effort to try to liberate themselves from, um, uh, from Anglo-French control. Uh, this may sound a little bit far-fetched because, of course, the Spanish did take a very kind of paternalistic attitude toward the Moroccans, and they certainly did establish a colony. And this is maybe only half sincere when they talk about um, a kind of Hispano-Moroccan brotherhood and so forth, or Hispano-Moroccan solidarity. Uh, but there is something to it, and you can see that very clearly, especially from 1936 forward, sort of at the toward the latter part of our period, when, um, when you have uh, a military revolt in Spain that touches off the Spanish Civil War, and some of the most enthusiastic uh, followers uh, and supporters of the rebellion, which is, uh, comes to be led by Francisco Franco, who had become the dictator of Spain for many decades, uh, some of the most uh, exuberant supporters uh, turn out to be uh, Moroccans, um, who support him largely because uh, they think that um, he will liberate them from the sort of French liberal, Republican, perhaps atheist yoke. That is amazing. I, you, you know, we, we don't often think about Spain that way, at least since I studied earlier Spain, it's just this, you know, great empire. But then you, you, you really make that case there, uh, early on in your book, that 180,000 Spaniards lived in North Africa. And unlike these uh, other Europeans living in their on conclaves and uh, concessions, they mixed among the people. Some of them took Muslim wives. Uh, and I read elsewhere that uh, Franco built the first mosque in Ceuta, you know, uh, since the expulsion of the Moors and the Jews. Sure. 500, 400, whatever, many hundreds of years yeah. earlier. So yeah. um, that's, that's a really new way to look at Spain. And maybe you could tell us, because, you know, as I was reading along with your book, I really rediscovered the total miserable chaos that 19th century Spain was, politically speaking, and also the poverty 
so what's going on in Spain between, you know, after, after Napoleon and before Franco? That's, that, what is that? Yeah, 19th century Spain is, yeah, you could characterize it in many ways, but I think a mess is probably not, not a bad way to start. Um, it, it, you know, there is the, the French Revolution and the peninsular, what's known as a peninsular war to oust Napoleon seems to give this kind of patina of, um, national unity, because the, the goal is to expel the French. Um, but underneath that are very different views uh, about why the French should be expelled. Um, and, uh, and so that legacy continues throughout the 19th century. You have um, uh, liberals who, um, you know, want to bring you know, see Spain, you know, follow the trajectory of a country like Britain or, um, and you even have a Republican movement, uh, that develops, um, and they are revolutionaries. And then you have, um, uh, traditionalists, traditional Catholics, uh, monarchists and so forth who see things very differently. And these two, uh, groups do not, well, actually there are many groups, but you could sort of boil it down to those two. Um, it's more complicated than that, of course, but they are, essentially in cycles of civil wars, of military coups, um, and so forth, pretty much throughout the entire 19th century, things cool off uh, in the last couple of decades, but then you have the rise of, you know, the sort of revolutionary anarchism and socialism, as you see elsewhere in Europe as well, um, which, which you know, is, in many ways um, continues that struggle, which then explodes in 1936 with the Spanish Civil War. So, yeah, so Spain um, is, is and, and, and it, well, and of course, because of the, because you have this sort of cycle of civil wars, there's very little economic development. I mean, you, there's some, um, but you certainly don't have the kind of takeoff that you have in other European countries. So that by 1900, uh, you know, Spain outside of certain cities, Barcelona, Madrid, a few others, Bilbao, that would look recognizably modern and European to uh, a traveler. But uh, you also, in the vast majority of the country, you see um, essentially a world that, you know, was kind of, well, a Southern European world. I mean, it, it, um, rather than a kind of what we would think of as a Western European world, you have a, you know, you have um uh, lots of landless peasants working for very little, living in abject poverty for generation after generation, you know, looking not too different from what you'd see in, say, Greece or southern Italy or something like that. And that, of course, in the southern part of Spain, right around the region I'm writing about, the kind of northern shore of the Strait of Gibraltar, that is very, um, that is is the prominent sort of social, socio-historical feature, these landless peasants with very little um, uh, prospect for, um, for, for, um, upward mobility. Uh, and they tend to be the ones who, um, you know, become kind of low level smugglers. When I say low level smugglers, I mean, they're the sort of, you know, the mules, um, the, the foot soldiers of these kind of vast operations of smuggling tobacco and other goods, but tobacco is really the big one. Um, and they sort of tend to have very little uh, attachment to the government per se. Um, they 
to them, the government are the guys who chase them when they're trying to live out their livelihood for a few pesetas a day, you know, running, running tobacco across a border or into the woods and so forth. Um, and so, um, y- you know, you, you get, you referred to, um, uh, shatter zones, and you you get this sort of situation in which there's very would little. Would you define uh, define shatter zones for our listeners? Well, yeah, I mean this this region sort of starts out, I argue, um, in the sort of in the early modern period as a shatter zone in the sense that uh, most of the social organization, even. Um, the legal conventions and norms, the way that the society is ordered in the south of Spain and the north of Morocco, um, has very little to do with any kind of central authority. Um, most of the people living there are doing what they can to avoid, uh, you know, avoid any kind of connection or association with their governments. Uh, and then this mentality is abetted by the fact that you have these little exclaves like British Gibraltar sitting there, um, Ceuta and Melilla, the two Spanish cities in northern Morocco, sort of, sort of ser- serve a similar purpose, as does the city of Tangier eventually because it p- becomes um, an international European colony. They abet that chatter zone society because they are able to offer protection to people who are avoiding persecution um, by the Spanish or the Moroccan authorities, smugglers uh, mainly at this point, but eventually, you know, um, um, militiamen and so forth as well, um, because uh, they, um, because, um, you know, the authorities in Melilla or the authorities in Gibraltar have a, have an interest in protecting them. Uh, they give them, uh, they, you know, they, they provide, um, well, they're integral to the economies of those exclaves essentially. Um, and they are, will become integral to the, um, sort of imperial projection of power of those exclaves. Um, so, uh, so it's a place where these little, Exclaves actually wind up exerting a kind of imperial influence far beyond their size uh, and far beyond the kind of military strength that's concentrated there. So that's that really seems like the story of state formation everywhere else, or at least to the north, because you know, as we historians often probably say, uh, the the normal normal life for most people throughout history was sort of chaos, local power, no sense of uh, any kind of national identity. The fact that many nations did not exist as we think of them or national languages or any idea who's in the capital or what is the flag or you're supposed to go to public school. None of that existed at that time. And it's slowly forming uh, in these, you know, modern European cities. But of course, the south of Spain, the south of Italy, are getting left behind the wild west in in the united states are getting left behind but as it's sort of taking shape in france and england it's not taking place in uh spain at the same at the same clip because of all the political trouble so now you have this uh, shatter zone border zone where only local power is effective and you also describe so many very clever political entrepreneurs and and brigands and smugglers I think you call them slipstream potentates. Ed, could you tell us who are these really colorful, remarkable characters? And I have a list of a few of them that maybe you could tell us about. Uh, and how they 
how they managed to negotiate a place where no central authority had much to say about anything uh, except for, you know, you're under arrest and give me some taxes. Yeah, right. And and in fact, I mean, and even then, uh, and, you know, what makes the situation so, um, you know, so completely zany is that this you're you're under arrest for smuggling tobacco by the central authority. Well, well, this fellow will just go to um, a local judge uh, or a local or a mayor or whoever who's actually enriched himself through the same sort of smuggling trade and get a pardon or sometimes even a priest. Um, and so, so actually, you know, they they might even not understand that what they're doing is at all illegal. Um, and so you, you've got these enterprises and some of them, like I, I said, tobacco smuggling was the big one in, in Southern Spain, but you would have, uh, in the North of Morocco, um, it tended to be more kind of classic brigandage, um, which, you know, would be, um, you know, bandits, robbers, you know, highway robbers, uh, and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, a few who built up, uh, large empires, you could say. Um, Juan March, uh, who would die the richest man in Spain in 1962, um, uh, had something like 40,000 people on his payroll, many of whom were actually government employees, Spanish government employees whom he was paying off. But, you know, um, uh, uh, tobacco growers, um, merchants and, um, and, and runners and so forth. Um, and, uh, and he winds up being, uh, building up, uh, this massive wealth and he, he, uh, you know, he's, he's, um, and he's able to do this because there are so many borders in this region. So he's able to sort of set up his operations, uh, just behind say the French line, uh, the, you know, in, in Algeria, um, and, uh, uh, or uh, he does a lot of operations out of Gibraltar, flying the British flag because he's able to register, you know, um, register his vessels in Gibraltar and so forth. So, so no one can get to him. And the minute that Spanish, French, and British authorities decide we're going to go after Juan March, which happens a couple times in the first part of the 20th century, we're going to go after this smuggling empire because he's not, um, because we're, you know, we're losing. Uh, we're losing millions of, uh, of pesetas in revenue because, um, because he's violating the terms of the monopoly. They can get him if they cooperate, but most of the time they don't cooperate. Um, most of the time he's able to sort of, like I say, as you know, I use the term slip, st- slipstream potentate, where he's this sort of becomes a potentate by riding in the slipstream. That is the, the sort of area behind an empire um, – you know, if, if you've ever ridden a bicycle behind a truck, you know what that is. You know, you don't have any wind resistance. So you can sort of hide behind an empire um, until and, and build power. And if that empire sort of turns on you, well, you can kind of uh, usually use your power to get away from it and, and, and ride behind a different empire for a little while. And Juan March does this. Another uh, figure who does this is um, Ahmed Mohamed Raisuni. Um, who is a, a Moroccan brigand in the north who, you know, builds up a sizable army. Um, the sultan 
at first is sort of jealous of um, of his power. Uh, this is a region of Morocco that that the Sultan's never really been very effective at controlling, uh, and Raisuni does a uh, an effective job at controlling it. So the, the Sultan tries to bring him in, tries to flatter him, tries you know gives him uh, in 1906 award or 1904 rather awards him Tangier, the city of Tangier. Says you know you'll become the um, the Kaid of, of Tangier, which is essentially the, the you know, the, 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 the governor uh, of Tangier. Um, but this is a time there's a lot of European settlement there. Um, and he's, you know, kind of commits this reign of extortion and terror in the city of Tangier and the Europeans uh, are not happy with it. So eventually they pressure the Sultan um, uh, to arrest him, which they do, but they can't hold him. He manages to escape. During the First World War, uh, the Germans um, supply him, uh, the Spanish supply him, um, and he conducts statecraft in much in the way you would expect um, any state to conduct it. You know, he changes alliances, he makes treaties, um, and, uh, and, and of course, he has a, a very large following. And uh, eventually, you know, he's he's captured, um, uh, but he's captured only at the hands of another slip, slipstream potentate, Abdel Krim, um, who you know leads a a, um, a rebellion that's often described as a kind of um, a kind of proto nationalist Moroccan rebellion uh, against the Spanish in the 1920s. Although I think it's really better described as as another sort of attempt at you know at, at kind of building. Um, a non-sovereign power base uh, in, you know, uh, through a very similar set of, of mechanisms, sort of exploiting borders, exploiting rivalries between the sovereign powers um, to build up this kind of lo- local power in the middle ground. That's, he's such an interesting case, the, the Abdel Krim at the end, where, where you uh, describe his... Uh, the Riffian crisis or uh, this war that goes on between Spain and, and uh, Krim for six or seven years. And I also get the impression that he can exploit the language of state formation and nationalism and these things, whereas the other guys feel much more like, uh, you know, gangsters, or as you say, the last of the Barbary pirates elsewhere Uh, is how does he play with that? And, and um, how does that, how does that work in, in this time, you know, of a very, early 20th century nationalism happening everywhere. Yeah. Well, the Rif, which is the, the kind of mountainous region of Northern Morocco, which, you know, is, is famously rebellious. I mean, they, they resisted Arabization, you know, dating um, to the dating to the eighth century. Um, they uh, resisted uh, the, the, uh, this, the Moroccan Sultan's rule, they resisted the Spanish uh, protectorate. You know, they're, they're sort of famously rebellious. And often Abdel Krim is sort of taken as a figure who's actually modern. He's not, he's not understood as part of this long sort of supposedly eternal cycle of riffy rebelliousness. He's a new kind of modern figure who, 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 who uh, is uh, in the employ of the Spanish during World War One, and decides that um, you know d- decides uh, he, he learns from observing the Germans and the Spanish uh, that um, the Riffies could build a kind of a nationalist movement um, 
a kind of a state building movement. He wants to integrate the tribes that have been sort of warring with one another. He wants to, you know, um, form a kind of riffy nation, which might eventually become, uh, you know, come to include all of Morocco. So he's often held up as this kind of modernizing um, proto-nationalist leader um, who doesn't quite succeed because the Spanish and French finally defeat him. Um, They defeat him using, I mean, they have to use um, uh, incendiary bombs. They have to use uh, chemical warfare and so forth, but they are able to defeat him by 1927. Uh, But, uh, but he, uh, you know, but until that, you know, for, for, for six or seven years, he does, um, you know, give hope that maybe, you know, Morocco can gain its independence. The thing is, when I took a closer look at it, I, I came to conclude that, I mean, yes, he certainly did have this proto-nationalist kind of, of rhetoric, and he sort of did imagine building up a riffy state. But at the same time, he also, uh, exploited many of these same um, assets of his region. The fact that the Spanish and the French had this terrible rivalry so he could play them off uh, of one another and he could, um, and the British for that matter as well. So he could, you know, uh, when he knew that the French and the Spanish were involved in heated negotiations over the status of Tangier, he could sort of convinced the French that he could weaken the Spanish position by doing this and that. Um, He could um, get supplies in from smugglers in Gibraltar, convince them that um, if they invest in his movement, um, that they will pay dividends, that they'll, you know, they they could, just like any kind of investment, um, they can invest in his movement. So so he was able to get uh, financing through the um, financial networks at Gibraltar. And so forth, and this actually was was quite effective um, in a in a in a uh, movement that militarily shouldn't have been that effective in terms of its you know uh, in terms of if you sort of compare it militarily with the Spanish, it shouldn't have stood a chance. But he managed to to kind of do it through these essentially kind of um, slipstream potentate kind of methods that had been tried and true in the region for at least a century. So, is this image that I have? That because they're far from anybody who has power and attention span to come in and lay down the law, they're far from Madrid, they're far from Paris, they're far from London, they're far from Istanbul, uh, that it is sort of this uh, Wild West gangster land that also, I think, appears in popular culture. I think about Casablanca, which is in Morocco, I th- the movie, and I think about um, Carmen, the opera, where the soldier deserts and runs off to the mountains with the gypsies and the smugglers. And I think about this wonderful passage you have about the child children's game where they don't play hide and seek in La Linea. They play contrabandistas y uh, carabineros. They play smugglers and sentries. And then just to add one more, I think about uh, the, the planet Tatooine, which was filmed in Tunisia, where everything is so far from the center of the galactic empire and you can do whatever you want. Is that a fair or is that a ridiculous romantic uh, well, I, I, you, you know, it's it's not too far off. I mean, I think I think you know, Carmen obviously um, is 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 quite romanticized, and and uh, and Tatooine. Uh, you know, I, I certainly I can't help but think that they got the idea for Tatooine by having visited these places and and sort of seen um, you know the way they operate. But I think what's what's um, interesting about um, about this particular place is that superimposed on that world is a is this geopolitical struggle 
that's deeply consequential for the British Empire, for the French Empire, and indeed that um, you know uh, Germany wants to um, you know have um, the, the Germans don't really necessarily want uh, to control the Strait of Gibraltar, but they certainly see an opportunity in both world wars to disrupt the um, British and French positions there um, as a way to, um, y- you know, as, as a way to, you know, open up a new front uh, in, in the, both of those wars. So, um, and then, you know, later on you have the, the pan um, the Pan-Arab movement led by Nasser, you have the Soviet Union, uh, and indeed you also have the United States that, you know, are also also there. Um, and so you have this geopolitical struggle uh, that's become superimposed on this world that is not accustomed to um, this kind of attention. And I think it creates some sort of interesting, um, interesting, you know, interesting characters like the ones I've been discussing, certainly. Um but also an interesting dynamic that helps us understand the the current situation there, which is a situation um, that uh, one hears a lot about in the news of, um, you know, uh, immigration, um, uh, of course, people wanting to leave Africa and get to Europe by any means they can. uh, And also over the last couple of decades, thinking about how, about jihadist violence and that kind of thing. Um, I think that, if we just, um, if we don't have a, a sort of a deeper sense of the more recent history of that border, we just kind of go back to, we just sort of default back to um, the sort of Christians and Muslims paradigm or the, you know, whether it's a clash of civilizations paradigm or a multiculturalist paradigm or whatever. Um, but there's so much more complexity to it. And I think that looking at the history you know, from in the modern period, um, not as a history just purely of colonialism, but as also as a borderland history, um, just uh, gives it a much richer uh, picture than I think what we might assume there just by thinking about it in terms of, you know, your, your, um, your Carmen or your, um, or your Tatooine or these places that, you know, that, that time forgot. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So, okay, let's talk more about that, uh, the convivencia aspect, the, the different cultures living together, because I think that's such a wonderful and much more positive uh, aspect of this in addition to sort of like gangster land uh, 
you know, shenanigans. Um, the, in the in the Crown Colony of Gibraltar, there were Britons and Spaniards and Portuguese and Mallorcans and Jews and Genoese. And same yeah. thing in the in the Spanish city of Ceuta. I, I I mentioned that Franco, who is such a you know Catholic conservative authoritarian figure built a mosque and you know his name is still there enshrined as the promoter of you know monotheism in this uh secular atheist you know time or you know um so uh, what's going on there and we talked about how the spaniards are mixing well that goes so much uh, counter to the traditional idea of, of of spaniards who are expelling muslims expelling jews and trying to consolidate uh their you know their um hom- homogeneity but not so not not here and maybe tell us what you've discovered about that because I, I i find that to be a, a very uplifting uh or you know exciting maybe not uplifting but exciting yeah, well it can be uplifting i think i think the 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 side that that often surprises people is the fact that that franco sort of you know, is, is is an admirer, a great admirer of Hitler, a would-be ally of Hitler's and Mussolini's, Franco, who, you know, um, uh, presents himself in Spain as a, a kind of a Catholic nationalist crusader. Um, well, his movement originates in the Spanish colony of Morocco. That's where, you know, the army is assembled and they kind of invade from across the strait uh, using German and Italian planes to, you know, airlift their supplies, uh, onto the Iberian peninsula. They, uh, you know, they, they need Moroccan mercenaries, first of all. So, you know, they, but they're also, you know, appealing to this idea that, um, the main threat to the world in 1936 is atheism, is liberalism, uh, is communism. Um, and so yes, Catholics or Christians and Muslims have had at it in the past, but we can also draw on this very romanticized memory of Al-Andalus, medieval Iberia, uh, in which um, Muslims and Christians and Jews, incidentally, um, did live together. I mean, they call it a multicultural society is is anachronistic, but um, they certainly did uh, live together. Um, uh, and the idea was, you know, if we respect uh, differences, if we make sure that there isn't too much mixing in terms of romance, uh, you know, I mean, they were very vigilant, actually, about making sure that, um, you know, uh, uh, Christian women and Muslim men and vice versa didn't get involved. And there were very few cases of that. Um, if we can set those boundaries we can actually live together fruitfully in terms of trade, in terms of, you know, if we respect each other's religion. And so that was, you know, that was the idea. And it did get a lot of people on board, you know, on board. And granted, it was for essentially, I'm sorry, I know you wanted to interrupt, but I didn't finish the thought, Um, you know, and it, and it did actually provide and winds up providing 80,000 troops for Franco's army. Uh, there, there's one point where you say yes, absolutely. They are avoiding hybridization, which is this, uh, you know, inter intermarriage. But other place you say that uh, Spaniards did have Moorish wives, and did you did you have a sense of which one? You know, I, I, I'm guessing now that the, the the intermarriage is the aberration, not the norm. Yeah, well, well, here's the thing. I, if you if you go back many centuries, you have untold numbers of Spaniards who disappeared, you know, disappeared into Barbary to find adventure. You know, people who were wanted or were deserting military service or who were, you know, owed money or whoever who just fled Spain and went to Morocco or Algeria to just find their fortunes. And we just don't know what happened to them. Um, 
then in the 19th century, you have a lot of Spanish uh, immigration. There's a lot of poverty in Spain. So a lot of Spaniards went to French Algeria to find work. Uh, and many of them, a, a certain number of them, uh, you know, wind up eventually converting to Islam and, and so forth. We don't, it's hard to say how many, um, but it's certainly not a majority, but, you know, some do. Um, it is with the establishment of the Spanish protectorate, and then particularly with Franco coming along, where they say, no, if we're going to make this work, we really have to respect these divisions and we have to respect pious Christians, pious Muslims fighting side by side against the evils of the modern world, which are this atheism, liberalism, socialism, and so forth. That's the message. Um, And it's a message you sort of summon um, sort of medieval legacy of the Spanish uh, warlord El Cid being the kind of the example that Franco seems to be following, um, who leads Christian and Muslim troops at the same time um, in the 11th century. So, um, you know, and again, these are sort of romanticized visions of, of these figures, but it's a way to kind of convincingly say, yes, I'm a Catholic crusader, but Islam, the true Islam is on my side. Uh, and and this cultivates a kind of um, a certain Moroccan nationalism, as long as it can be directed against the French <laughs> and not the Spanish. I think that makes a lot of sense. And especially in that 19th century, sort of Walter Scott idea where everybody's on crusade together and every noble knight is on, is in disguise anyway. Oh, yeah. They're all yeah. on the same, you know, there's so many noble Moors and no, noble Saracens fighting with, you know, whatever, noble crusaders. And um, that fits, not to mention the, the El Cid movie that came out when Franco was still alive. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sorry to have interrupted. Did, did I, did I, uh, did I derail your thought? No, 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 not at all. Yeah. Okay. So that's remarkable too. And I think that no matter what the outside world says rhetorically, they're going to do their own thing, which is a pragmatic thing where I, you know, I, I'm really interested in my neighbors, not in what somebody says in the capital. And my neighbor is from this group and I'm from this group, but we get together and we get along. And maybe we're smuggling tobacco together or maybe evading the taxes or, you know, um, one, one more character that appears throughout the century is cholera. And that is, does not go away. It's almost like the bubonic plague of, you know, the 19th century. It just keeps coming back and keeps coming back and kills a third of the people and kills a third of the people. Talk talk about that. That's because that's something we've totally forgotten. Yeah. Well, this is, you know, um, I think the reason Cholera first comes up, um, you know, it's often you'll see it, uh, you know, come up in these travel narratives and so forth. And, and we went to, and we went to Damascus and there was cholera. So we had to leave, uh, kind of thing. And it just sort of appears and you really don't know why, but, but cholera is a classic 19th century disease. It doesn't, you know, it didn't, you know, it's existed since, um, you know, as long as we know, I mean, it's existed since for thousands of years, um, in apparently originated in, in South Asia, but, um, but it can't survive on, um, you know, on, on sailing vessels long enough to spread because the sailing vessels, you know, just on wind sail, you know, just don't go fast enough. Um, but with the steamship cholera could actually survive a trip from India to Europe. Um, and so when people are able to get around the seas faster, cholera starts spreading. Uh, and so the 19th century, and, and people can't really figure out what causes it. Um, it, it lives in water, it turns out. Um, but there's this kind of, um, you know, there's this debate 
uh, among epidemiologists in the 19th century? Are they, you know, is it contagious or is it environmental? And it sort of sort of seems to be both. Um, but um, but in any case, uh, you know, because it seems to it seems to um, you know uh, hurt. Uh, it seems to attack people who live in places where there's a lot of standing water, places that are sort of foul smelling and with poor um, sewage evacuation. But at the same time, it's obviously contagious. So, so there was this debate. Well, which is it? Uh, turns out it's it's both because it comes it lives in the water. So if um, so if you know you have wet towels say on a ship, and then those towels are offloaded and introduced into a city, well, so is cholera. Um, and so where you have more standing water, there's more time for the cholera, more places where the cholera can spread. Um, the reason this is significant is because quarantine is one method of controlling cholera. Another seem, another is um, improving the urban landscape, getting rid of standing water, improving sewage systems and so forth. Um, and the problem with quarantining is that it become it's very um deleterious to trade i mean if you require ships to sit for 15 days in harbor before they can offload their goods um, a lot of people die a lot of people go hungry um it's an impediment to trade whereas um you know and so um, and it can also become a kind of uh, kind of political uh, tool as well, um, you know. You and and that's what the Spanish attempted to do to try to you know starve out Gibraltar on a couple of occasions uh, to use cholera as a pretext um, to starve out uh, Gibraltar. Um, but what winds up kind of gaining more currency by the latter part of the 19th century is, you know, urban sanitation movement. So um, that's where you see cities that, you know, had been sort of foul places, like places like Tangier, um, a number of cities on the southern coast of Spain, Malaga, um, not to mention Ceuta and Melilla, that are sort of improved uh, and they become open for settlement. Uh, and indeed, in the case of Tangier, a kind of nascent tourism industry. Um, it's sort of like the Sun Belt, you know, uh, avant la lettre. You have, uh, you know, you have lots of people going down to these places. So that's really also it's a, an element of, of colonialism as well, where, where um, you know, uh, where people settle there and that again, it reinforces this kind of mixing. And then it like to a place like Tangier, when Europeans start settling there, people with a certain amount of money start investing there, it attracts Moroccans to the city uh, as well. And there's a kind of, yes, it's a colonial city. Um, so we're sort of trained to think that that's, um, you know, there, there's, there's a, a kind of an ethical problem with that. Uh, but at the same time, there was it, it was a kind of uh, a society where there was a good deal more uh, mixing of different kinds of people than what you would see after decolonization. So, so great. Let's let's talk more about tourism. And, and I just want to say that cholera is such a great example because it shows how technology can make things worse before it actually makes <laughs> things better. Yeah, and one of the other things that happened with the advent of steam is that. Gibraltar becomes this coaling station, which is not as well paid as whatever they were before. And so there's economic depression and then tourism comes along and that, that changes a lot. So maybe say a bit about uh, tourism did not exist 200 years ago and it sure is a big deal. Now I was in Gibraltar as a tourist when I was in college back. All right. Gee, I, th I think last century, maybe, I don't know, maybe not, but, <laughs> yeah, but, right. I, but I was there and you know, you, you, there's uh, you go up the rock and you have, you, you, you know, you, you, 
buy some snacks. And then there's a bunch of monkeys, <laughs> which are which are very aggressive and funny. Uh, how how does tourism transform this part of the world? Well, it, I mean, very early on, uh, actually, Gibraltar isn't really one of the centers of tourism until a bit later. Um, but uh, certainly, you know, Tangier, uh, it's a place where there's less tourism today, uh, proportionately. But but uh, 1900, it was, um, you know, this was this was the future. Um, there was all kinds of investment. That's where much of the transport infrastructure was um, down there was built um, to attract tourists. Um, you know, it's a, the railroad industry, all, uh, the, the main rail companies were the ones who built the luxury hotels, uh, that are down there. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting, uh, on, on that level, I mean, it has a significance on that level. Um, it brought, uh, people, um, seeking a more comfortable kind of lifestyle who weren't just, uh, you know, um, not just adventurers, but people who, you know, just wanted to escape, you know, maybe they had tuberculosis or something and they wanted to escape, uh, you know, the clogged, uh, you know, or the, you know, uh, cold, damp industrial cities of England, uh, and spend the winter in, 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 in Tangier or Algiers and in, in French Algeria, some sort of similar kind of thing. Um, and then when that happens, it is also a kind of, a, it's an invitation for brigands as well. Um, and so that, you know, actually created that dynamic. And one of the, you know, Raisuni's rise, who I mentioned earlier, the brigand in Northern Morocco kind of got his rise, from, you know, really got attention. He, he kidnapped Moroccans all the time. Uh, and there wasn't a whole lot to be gained. But when you start kidnapping European tourists here and there, you can really make some ransom money. Um, and so, and so that was a big part of his rise to power as well was, you know, going after, tell, um, tell that story, tell the, the story, how he kidnaps a times correspondent and then they become lifelong friends. And then they become <laughs> lifelong friends. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's the Stockholm syndrome, right? Like where, where you start to have sympathy for your captor after you're in captivity. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of a surprising story, but, um, actually Harris, this figure who's, you know, kidnapped and spends a few weeks, uh, in in Raisuni's captivity, but he, you know, he's, he Raisuni even keeps, you know, Raisuni's a good Muslim. He wouldn't keep alcohol on hand. He certainly wouldn't keep a Christian Bible on hand, but he does because he captures Europeans every once in a while, and he wants to be hospitable. So he makes sure that they have, uh, you know, wine to drink and uh, a Bible to read. Uh, and so, you know, so so a lot of what we know about Raisuni actually comes from Harris's account um, of his captivity there. Um, and yeah, and, 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 and Harris is always kind of sympathetic to him and sort of admires him. And he run, eventually, um, gets something like 25,000 pounds ransom for releasing Harris and is made, um, on that occasion is when he is actually, uh, made a Kaid of Tangier, uh, position, which he's able to hold for a couple of years anyway. Um, and, and, and through that position, he enriches himself a good deal more by, you know, selling property titles and all the things, you know, I mean, essentially, you know, he's a gangster, but he's a gangster with political power now. So he enriches himself that way as well. Well, you know what? I, I think that is fantastic. The, the journalism aspect and some of the travel diaries you found. I, I loved following along in your footnotes and I would often go down these uh, little tunnels. So I started reading Alexander yeah. Slidell McKenzie, who's this American officer. Uh, right. And he's, I think he does a, you know, a, with a, a grand tour of in Spain for a year in the 1820s or, or, you know, equivalent. And just his, 
remarkable 19th century romantic descriptions of this is you know he has great admiration for the british he he makes a lot of fun of the spanish character and he has a really distasteful dislike for for the jews which is you know hard to read but he's an excellent writer and he gets you into the mind of of those people and you have just citation after citation of these of these characters how did you find all these sources how did you enjoy reading them and um I imagine you probably assign these things left and right now to your to your undergraduates. Or tell me about your sources. Yeah, well, you know, I use a range of sources. The travel narratives are tend to be my favorites. Like I do enjoy reading them. Um, how I found them, you know, I don't remember how I found that one. Um, it, it, you know, uh, it ha- it so happens that the Spaniards, particularly less so the Moroccans, but the Spaniards. Um, Spanish historians are have always been very interested in how they're perceived, how Spain is perceived. So there's a lot of literature on that, on you know perceptions of Spain by romantic travelers and perception. So um, you know you can start looking at those works and seeing the bibliography and kind of so, so it wasn't that hard to find those. Um, of course, digging into them and really um, and really. Uh, you know, mining them for the kinds of things I was looking for was then, um, uh, you know, a lot of work, but it was work that I, that I enjoyed very much. Um, and then, you know, they're, they tend to be more interested actually in the foreign gaze. That's sort of a, a Spanish national obsession in some respects. Um, but then, you know, also finding, um, you know, diaries of, of, you know, Spanish journalists, um, you know, which I had to do a little bit more digging for. Unfortunately, I don't have uh, Arabic skills and I, don't think I ever will at this point. Um, so I wasn't able to, to read anything in Arabic, but, um, but there was a certain amount that I was able to find in translation into French that I was able to get through. Um, and then additionally, I used um, I sort of military archives, um, which, which I find to be a wonderful source for this type of thing. Uh, a lot of them contain sort of what amount to travel narratives as well, uh, at least kind of, um, you know, reports by intelligence gatherers that are just giving a lot of detail about whatever they can learn. Um, so in some respects, they kind of look like travel narratives in a, in a way. Um, and then, you know, your, your typical kind of consular uh, reports and that kind of thing um, were, also, were also fairly helpful. Another source that I use, which kind of departs from that kind of thing, um, were a few court cases, a few legal cases, which, um, which reveal uh, a bit about what the terms um, of um, borderland, border cooperation or cross-border cooperation were between, particularly between the Gibraltar and the Spanish authorities. Well, it's it really is a marvelous uh, bibliography that you have, and um, I should add, I should have said this right on the outset that this book is very readable. There's no you know historians jargon in it. You can just go right through it, and then the uh, the, the the footnotes are 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 a delight. They lead you into all kinds of interesting things. Uh, I'm glad to hear you say that because the first draft had a lot, and I tried to. <laughs> I try to peel it away uh, with each revision. And I think that's kind of a good practice for, for uh, historians in general. Um, you know, you need the jargon. We need the jargon amongst ourselves, I think, um, because it's shorthand for what we do and we understand what we mean and it's a way, you know, it helps us theorize and think theoretically. But with each successive draft, I think it's good to strip away and really tell your story with clarity in a way that anyone could understand. So I think, I think the last question I'll ask you is probably the 
one that people think about first is Gibraltar as a military installation. It is a rock, and I don't think it has been taken by force at any point, or you can correct me, but the times it's changed hands, it's somebody was away and somebody snuck in and somebody tricked somebody else. <laughs> and, uh, and people could hold up there. There was a one one siege you write about that lasted four years and did, did not succeed. Yeah. And um, I'm sure you have a lot of military sources describing the day-to-day life. I read elsewhere that the most flogged man in the British Empire was posted in, in Gibraltar. It's a, a drummer who was flogged 30,000 times in the course of his, <laughs> like 30,000 lashes, I should say. But I mean, it just sounds like a severe place to be. And it, and I don't think anybody has ever conquered it, except for, of course, James Bond in The Living Daylights. Where, yeah, uh, it was not a uh, it was not a great assignment uh, yeah. to be stationed there, um, which, you know, and, and same for the Spaniards on the other side, which is why, you know, they sort of assumed that um, part of it was collecting bribes was was maybe a, a kind of a mitigation a mitigating factor. But uh, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very much, you know, the, the life there and, you know, largely because of the, the cholera. Um, it got better. I mean, it got better by the 20th century. Uh, you've been there. You know, it's not a horrible place anymore. But I think um, for much of the 19th century, it, it very much was um, very not very much space. You know, this isthmus that connects it to the mainland, you know, really became, um, you know, a place where, you know, gardening um, was, you know, you know, fertilized with untreated sewage. And that was the you know, that, that was the source of fresh food. Um, so you get the idea. Uh, yeah. Um, and today you say it's, uh, yeah, today's quite comfortable. So strange things are going on there. They have casinos and, uh, financial institutions. They have internet gambling. What's, what's, what is well, Toronto yeah. in 2019? Well, under, under Franco, uh, in the 1960s, there was really an attempt by the Spanish to take it back. Um, and the, the, the strategy for doing that was essentially to blockade it, to, you know, to, to close the border. Um, the British sort of thought they would never close the border because their, um, the towns on the other side were so dependent on, you know, working in Gibraltar, you know, labor, uh, you know, all the employment opportunities there and so forth. Um, but they did it, uh, for, um, 13 years from 1969 to 1982, uh, eventually opened it up when, when the Spanish were trying to get into NATO and so forth um, in the 80s. But, you know, um, that cross-border sort of single sort of cross-border community that had formed over the course of that century between about 1850 and, you know, 1960s kind of was no longer there. Um, and, uh, and Gibraltar sort of it sort of became deterritorialized, you know, now it's, it's, you know, it became a center of, you know, finance and, you know, internet gambling and all these things that are sort of unregulated. Um, now with the whole issue with Brexit, um, is so complicated that it gives me a headache to even think about, so I won't go into it, but, um, but, but Gibraltar is exempt from many of the financial regulations that, um, that the EU has, um, you know, imposed elsewhere. Um, and so it, it sort of sits out in the middle of the ocean in a sense, even though it's right there on the edge of Europe. Remarkable. Well, those are all my questions. Is there anything we've forgotten to talk about? No, uh, this was uh, wonderful. I really feel I appreciate your questions and uh, I don't really have anything more I'm, I'm yearning to add. So, um, well, I can't thank so. you enough. You've, you've really changed my view as a 16th century Spanish historian. I think of the Gibraltar as the, you know, pillars of Hercules and it went from the barrier to the Atlantic to sort of the gateway to the new world for Charles V. Yeah. It appears on the flag of, of Spain. 
but you've given me this whole new way to think about it in 19th century. And this is a wonderful book. I recommend it to historians and non-historians and lay people and uh, certainly undergraduates or, and uh, graduate students working on your orals list. So thank you again, Dr. Peck. And thank you so much for speaking with us today on the New Books in History podcast. Well, thanks very much, Christoph. It was a real pleasure.